Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Everyone from futurists to architects keeps claiming that sprawl is going to go away, that the city will rise again, and I see absolutely no evidence of that. That's Aaron Betsky, director of Virginia Tech's School of Architecture and Design. He's a widely published critic on art, architecture, and design. Trained as an architect and in the humanities at Yale University, he is the author of over a dozen books, including Architecture Matters, Making It Modern, Landscrapers, Building with the Land, Scanning, the Aberrant Architectures of Dillerin Scafidio, Queer Space, Revelatory Landscapes, and Architecture Must Burn. Internationally known as a lecturer, curator, reviewer, and commentator, he writes the blog Beyond Buildings for architectmagazine.com. Director of the 11th Venice Architecture Biennale, he has also been president and dean of the School of Architecture at Taliesin, originally the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture, director of the Netherlands Architecture Institute, and of the Cincinnati Art Museum, and was founding curator of architecture design and digital projects at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. As an architect, he worked for Frank O'Geary and Associates and Hodgetts and Fung. At the Whitney Museum of American Art in 2003, he co-curated Scanning, the Aberrant Architectures of Diller and Scafidio. Born in Montana, he grew up there and in the Netherlands. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you, Max. Yeah, so glad to get you today and grateful that you could make time. I know it's been a transition to your new gig, and I'm curious what the transition to Virginia Tech has been like. Well, uh, moving across the country during a pandemic, of course, is not easy, but we managed to do that back in June. And of course, then I immediately found myself faced with the task of getting this school ready for a fall in a completely novel situation. And we saw it as a design challenge. So working with our director of space here, Enrique Rez, we actually designed a very colorful and lively installation that ensures that every student who wants a desk here, and that's about 700 students, all can have a desk properly distanced and separated by these partitions. We have covered outdoor spaces for pinups and discussions, and we're about to take, although it was a bit delayed, we're about to take delivery of a geodesic dome where we can have somewhat larger reviews. So it's been an interesting process of trying to use this as a way to make our place better. I'm assuming you don't get a geodesic dome on Amazon.com. So how do you get such a thing? Uh, actually, you can find it on Amazon, like just about everything. But we decided that that one wasn't quite good enough. So we went to a manufacturer in California and actually speaking of all kinds of biblical plagues, the reason why it's not installed yet is because of the wildfires in California. Wow. Very exciting. By contrast, I'm in Manhattan's financial district. I'm looking out at empty office buildings that are shuttered with businesses at their base shuttered as well. You wrote about office buildings when this all started as incubators for the coronavirus and of the need, quote, to design the commons, not the castle, the relation, not the object, and the social, not the individual. So with the first 
nip of cool air now arriving. How's that going to work on the island that I'm sitting on? Well, of course, you, I'm sure, have experienced the return to work in Manhattan being not quite as intense as some people had thought it might be. And that has several reasons. First of all, many people are reluctant not only to be at work, but to get to work, even though the latest studies show that actually public transportation is rather safer than we thought it was. People are very worried about being in those kind of enclosed situations on their commute. Second of all, they're also, of course, not all comfortable with being at work. But beyond that, we've all discovered that not everything needs our physical presence. I think that as we move forward, and I'm, of course, not the only one who says this, we're going to finally make the turn towards being at work or anywhere else where we need to be only if we really physically need to be there to concentrate on the tasks that need our presence or benefit for our presence and to do the rest of the work wherever we please to do it or wherever we can do them. Of course, uh, like in all issues that confront us, it is very much a class issue, which is to say that the kind of possibilities that I just outlined are available only to the white collar workers on the whole, and even then only to the upper echelon of those workers. But even within that, I think we're going to see this looking back as a moment when we finally realized that we don't really need to be in our office. I'm sure you realize it as I did, and many of our listeners did, that when we had to go home and use our computers from there, yes, it was a hardship, but it wasn't a hardship for everything. We can be much more specific now about what we need to do with each other and what we don't need to do. And so to bring that back to what will happen, I think that it will increase the trend to think of office buildings as social spaces, as commons, not as collections of cubicles. There's no reason to sit in your cubicle doing things. However, there is a reason to gather around the proverbial water cooler, or as we're now finding out, to gather in places where you can look each other in the face, you can figure out what everyone's body language is, where you could have sidebar conversations without having to go through links, where you can have a critical mass of discussion. And that, of course, is also not something new. It was pioneered as an idea in the late 1980s and early 1990s in places like the Chaya Day offices, an advertising firm that is no longer with us. But it has picked up steam since then. And of course, the whole WeWork revolution was all about that. It was all about creating a place that not only gave you high-speed internet access, which is one of the other things we need, but also gave you a place where you could meet other entrepreneurs, supposedly, drink beer together, play pool together, and the hope was exchange ideas. I think even if WeWork is going to turn out to be the failed profit of that kind of work, we'll see a lot more of that. So in a concrete sense, that also means there will be much less need for office buildings, and we're already seeing 
people noticing that they're having leasing problems, especially in places like Manhattan. We're going to see a need for larger spaces for collective gathering and discussion. I'm curious about urban density then and what living patterns may be. I've heard some people say lately, well, if I don't need to go to an office in Manhattan, why do I need to live near Manhattan? You need to live near Manhattan because you need to be near the Metropolitan Museum and uh, this little place called the Whitney Museum and the Museum of Modern Art and the Opera and the Ballet and all of the best restaurants in the world and all the other great things that Manhattan has to offer. However, you don't need to live near Manhattan to work. You can, in fact, do that just about anywhere. So we will notice that the central business districts are not central business districts, as we used to call them, but the places for what I believe David Harvey called the four C's, command, control, culture, and civic gathering, which is to say, what you need to do in a downtown dense area is go to see the people who have all the power because they reside there and they need to be near each other. You need to go there to do civic duties such as be on a jury. You need to go there for culture and you need to go there when you need to go to jail or something of that sort. So we will understand that that's really what those places are about. And we also will have to come to terms with the fact that sprawl is real. Everyone from futurists to architects keeps claiming that sprawl is going to go away, that the city will rise again, and I see absolutely no evidence of that. I see sprawl continuing I understand that sprawl is extremely problematic, both in terms of its incredible waste of resources and space, but also in terms of the social isolation it creates. However, that does not mean that we can just think it away. Rather, we need to think through it and figure out how to make sprawl work. If we're all going to live wherever we want to live or wherever we have to live, which is the reality for 90% of the people. And we're going to have to travel around to get either our culture or our civic services or to live. Then we need to figure out how to do that in such a way that respects the landscape, that makes these kind of facilities open to everyone, and that makes the situation truly sustainable. That, I think, is the number one challenge we have to face. Aaron, you and I got to know each other almost two decades ago when you were behind a landmark exhibition at the Whitney titled Scanning the Aberrant Architectures of Diller and Scafidio. And among the displays in the exhibition was one on the future of the American lawn, which continues to resonate with me when you talk about sprawl. What remains relevant to you from that exhibition and from Diller and Scafidio's now Diller, Scafidio and Renfro design philosophy that was espoused at that time? Well, first of all, I think it's showing that you were pretty visionary in commissioning that exhibition, uh, which I think was the only major architecture exhibit to happen in New York that year and is one of the few architecture exhibitions of that era 
of that scale. And of course, Diller, Scafidio, and Renfro, who were then still avant-garde practitioners who spent as much time doing site-specific installations and performances as they did making buildings, have gone on to become, I would say that it's not unfair to, I'm, I'm thinking about this out loud, I would say it's not unfair to say that since Frank Gehry, they are the most influential architecture and design firm in this country. And I think that's easy to say because of their work at Lincoln Center and on the High Line in New York, as well as a whole number of other buildings that now include the new Symphony Hall that's being built in London. But to go back to that exhibition, what Diller Scafidio really made clear was that architecture is not a question of making boxes for us to work in, to live in, or to play in, but rather that architecture is a way of understanding where and possibly who we are, and that if that architecture is in the hands of people who want to put us in our place, they will do so. In other words, architecture is, always has been, and probably always will be the built affirmation of the social, political, and economic status quo, the people who have the power and the means, and architects work for them. That becomes evident, and Dylan's video made that evident in their installations that were about things like surveillance and about the kinds of false images that we produced. I mean, they talked about fake news way before anyone else did. They also showed in that work how we can literally break down some of those structures. My favorite piece was the commissioned new piece in the exhibition that had a drill going around randomly or seemingly randomly drilling holes in one of your beautiful, precious museum walls uh, to the point where after the exhibition ended, there were no walls left. In our defense, it was drywall. <laughs> it was drywall, I know, I know. Uh, and I still miss that building, I have to say, much better than that awful new structure where Whitney is now located. But that's a whole nother conversation. But this notion that architecture can be a way of unbuilding or breaking down barriers, can be a way of looking differently and being differently in space is a very radical notion that now resonates with at least two generations of architects. And it's the kind of thinking we need now because the reaction to COVID has been one of risk management. It's been one of trying to figure out how we can separate people even more, isolate people even more, take even more power away from people and instead, it should be an excuse to figure out, as you quoted me as saying, how we can really build a commons, how architecture can be a critical form of connection, of opening up our spaces. And Diller and Scafidio have, for the last few decades, shown us some wonderful ways to do that in their work. Aaron, you recently wrote in your regular column for Architect Magazine about post-pandemic architecture. And in that column, you argue for upcycling or repurposing existing building stock, which probably puts fear in the heart of every architect. 
So thinking just about museum architecture for a minute, what kinds of post-pandemic adaptations do you think would be responsible in the future instead of continuous expansion? Uh, when I was the director of the Cincinnati Art Museum, I inherited a project to do a major new addition. I worked to rethink it to the point where the addition part was actually relatively minor. But then, of course, 2008 hit. And by the time we were done, I at least realized that we actually did not need a great deal of new space. We, need to, we needed instead to make better use of the space that we already had. And I think that that is a lesson we should all be learning. The reality of making new buildings is that it is impossible to create any new structure without wasting tremendous amount of natural resources and land. And it is also impossible to make a new addition that will be as good in its bones as anything that was built in the past, just because the reality of the construction industry is that it is leaching value and meaning out of buildings at such a rapid pace. And I would, again, compare the new Whitney Museum to the old Whitney Museum in that sense. And of course, the poster child for a completely wrong-handed approach to new museums is the wanton destruction of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and its replacement by a smaller, badly designed, incredibly wasteful structure that is currently under construction. And it is, for me, still a mystery why a director who started in a brilliant way by repurposing existing buildings, opening them up, creating small pavilions around them, as well as creating fantastic exhibitions, let himself fall under the notion of making a new building. It's just impossible for me to imagine. Well, Aaron, I guess I'm curious about the reward system because directors have traditionally been rewarded for aspiring to growth and grow or die was something that became a phenomenon in the 80s for museums. Are you saying the reward system is changing as well as the external realities facing institutions or not? Absolutely. I think that many boards now realize that making a grand new building is perhaps not the best use of their money or of the community's money. In the same way that we have been realizing for a while now that blockbuster exhibitions don't make much sense if they are designed as blockbuster exhibitions. If you think of them as two opportunities to bring together art and to offer interpretations in a way that cannot be done in a smaller scale or through publications or another means, then they make sense. But just making the big show to make the big show doesn't make either economic or intellectual sense. And our mutual friend, David Resnikow, has been arguing this for, again, quite a few decades. And the economics have now proven not to pan out for either big new buildings or big new blockbusters. I think we should all be learning from libraries, which I think are really 
becoming the model for how many cultural institutions should see themselves as places that have reimagined themselves away from just repositories of books and towards the kind of places that bring people together to gain shared knowledge. And they have rethought themselves in terms of those activities. If you think of a museum as a machine for bringing people and art together and doing that in the best possible manner, then you should think from that particular perspective and not in terms of having the largest amount of square feet or the highest percentage of art that is on display. And part of that transition, though, has to be moving away from the paradigm that big attendance is the objective rather than what you've described as an experience for the visitor that's rewarding, that lasts, that has a palpable benefit. Right now, they're pushed away from that because they can't welcome a lot of people. But how do you get the reward system to change, to have boards and critics and the art world observers say, you know what, big crowds simply don't mean what they used to. Now it has to be substance. Well, I'm not sure, first of all, that it doesn't mean big crowds, because in fact, crowds do help your bottom line. Even if you don't charge admission, as many museums no longer do, you make a great deal of money off of all of the sticky things around people's attendance, the cafes and the shops and all the other commercial ventures. But it's interesting because I was part of an effort in Cincinnati to actually establish metrics for what it is that cultural institutions do. And that group made some very interesting discoveries, which was that attendance is an output, not an outcome. It is not necessarily the end result. The outcome is something that's much more difficult to measure and that has to do with the way that you revitalize communities or enhance access and knowledge of a broad range of people. And by the way, it's not just about sheer numbers of people. It's also about what kind of people come into the museum. One of the benchmarks that I was proudest of at the Cincinnati Art Museum was the fact that for three of the years I was there, our attendance of African-American, of black people at the art museum was actually higher than black people were as a percentage of the population of greater Cincinnati. And that for me was a real benchmark that I could point to and then say, now, what have we achieved by reaching out to that population and how do we need to follow up with that? Does that need to be recognized? Do you need people to look through those numbers, absolutely. But the good news is that donors are becoming much more savvy. We all know that people are much less likely to just give you a check when you show up at the door. Rather, they have their money managed in funds. They have experts advising them. And those kind of people are looking very carefully at a much more sophisticated way of thinking about why we have art museums and what their true success is. In your thinking, teaching, and writing, you've also advocated an expanded use of post offices for a variety of civic functions, allowing people to pay taxes, to get licenses and permits, and in effect, 
becoming community centers. And you are unusual because you're a global citizen. You have European roots as well as American roots. What do you think the chances are in this country at this moment of community-focused planning solutions as opposed to more territorial or gated or self-referential planning? Gosh, Max, that depends on the mood I'm in. No, I will try not to be so flip. We are obviously at a crossroads in many ways in this country. We are faced with a possible descent further into fascism. We are also faced with the possibility that we might save ourselves from that in the upcoming election. Will that decisively turn the corner? I'm not so sure because we have faced other decisive moments in the past. And even when things have gone the way we hoped, it has not meant that we've solved all of our problems. The tendency in our world these days is very much towards social isolation, towards ever greater economic inequality, and of course, also to the continual rape and pillage of our natural resources, all of which I am afraid might also be irreversible. When I talk to some of my students, I get from quite a few of them the rather cynical perspective that it's already too late and that if they can get 20 or 30 years of good life out of our current situation, that is the most they can hope for because it will be impossible to save us from the effects of climate change, and everything else that we're doing with our world. I hope that that is not true. And I think that by taking decisive action, we still can make a difference. To answer your question a little bit more directly, though, I think that we actually have the building blocks for building a better society at hand. And they are not only at the scale of politics with a large P and of political parties. They are also at the scale of, as you point out, me pointing out, post offices, libraries, community centers, and the community itself. Again, back to my earlier discussion about sprawl, the real work of architecture and the real work that we as citizens have is to figure out how we can take our sprawling communities and our sprawling communities are not just the places out there beyond Manhattan and beyond the cliffs of New Jersey, but also Manhattan itself, which itself is becoming in strange ways less dense. And to figure out how in that sprawl we can create the commons, how we can create anchors, how we can create places where people come together. You can see examples of that both in this country and abroad, and especially abroad, the development of the notion of acupuncture urbanism developed in South America along with tactical urbanism has really gone very far in developing these kind of community centers 
sometimes also tied to infrastructure. The most famous example being the aerial tramway in Caracas and the tying in of its stations, which go through some of the poorest areas in the city to things like libraries and gyms. But even in this country, you can see the development of small libraries in Washington, D.C. that have become these kind of community centers. Now, do we see them in post offices yet? No, we do not. But I think, again, the possibility is there and it will not take that much investment. It will take collective will and it will take the imagination of the designing class. I hope that here at Virginia Tech, we can help educate some of the students who will be able to assist in such developments. Speaking of innovation, I'm just curious if on a practical level, there is one innovation in building materials or techniques that you're looking at today with special enthusiasm. I think our focus on innovation is also part of our focus on the idea that everything has to be bigger and newer and slicker. I am more interested in the clever ways we are figuring out to reuse both buildings and materials. It seems to me that we should be looking not for new inventions, but for the incremental improvement of our ability to recycle and to upcycle materials, forms, buildings, and even social relations. And that's where I really see the most exciting future. And again, it goes at every scale. I was very happy to see that the American Institute of Architects just gave their 25-year award to a series of warehouse conversions that were done starting in the late 1980s by the architect Eric Owen Moss, working with the developers Fred and Laurie Smith. That set of renovations, bit by bit, piece by piece, has turned into an amazing hub of creativity in the flat plains of Los Angeles. I also recently, right before the pandemic, traveled to Beijing and saw what used to be the largest steel mill in the world, decreed by Mao, that has now been turned into the home of the Winter Olympics coming up through a series of renovations and small additions that are just spectacular. So at every scale and around the world, we are seeing this kind of rethinking and rebuilding and bit by bit, we're learning from those innovations. Just to cite one more example, there's a firm in Belgium called Rotor that has long looked at reuse, and now they have a special subdivision called Rotor DC for deconstruction that goes into what many people think are useless buildings from the 1960s, 70s, and even 80s, strips out all of the materials and furniture that, again, usually wind up in the dumpster because people think they're ugly and unusable, 
sort them, store them, figure out how to get rid of any material that is dangerous, and then offers them for sale so that they can be reused in existing buildings. There's so much going on in architecture, and I would look very much to China because this whole notion of creating community centers and accepting sprawl, which they're doing much faster than we are, and then figuring out how to do sprawl right to integrate agriculture and art and community centers into these sprawling communities is something you're beginning to see all over China. I'm hoping to organize an exhibition about this for the next Venice Biennale. So. Look to China. There's so much going on there. Aaron, actually, I think we look to Virginia Tech and for your leadership and your insight and wisdom. And thank you so much for making time today to join the podcast. Thank you so much, Max. It was a pleasure. And yes, please come see us at Virginia Tech. The Hokies will be happy to have you here. <laughs> Thanks so much. We've been speaking today with Aaron Betsky, director of Virginia Tech's School of Architecture and Design. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.